How can you say I love movies if you don't haven't seen any <laughs> know them? Right. Yeah, that's right. like saying I love a person you have a crush on who's never met you. You know what I mean? Right. Like you have to you have to dive into this. You have to really love it yeah. if you want to be a part of it. I mean, Quentin was already such an aficionado before he yeah. ever did one. You know, rolled one inch of film. He had already seen a zillion films. I had too. I think a lot of the people that I run with come from that school of, you know, we love movies for real. We're not kidding. You know, filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers from blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store. There is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. Welcome back to the Film School podcast. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Laura Cayuette. She's perhaps best known for her role as Leonardo DiCaprio's sister in Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained, but she's also acted in 45 other films, including Now You See Me, Kill Bill, and Enemy of the State. Her television appearances include True Detective, Friends, and a recurring role on Queen Sugar. Laura's also earned a master's degree in creative writing and English literature at the University of South Alabama, where she was awarded Distinguished Alumni in 2014. She currently resides in New Orleans, where she is writing actively and still performing regularly. And Laura is an absolutely phenomenal actress and a great guest. We talk about so many incredible things from how she felt called to be an actor, what the process looks like, both practically and philosophically. At the end of the discussion, we talk a little bit about the Harvey Weinstein arrest and what effect that had on the industry, uh, the Me Too movement, and so on and so forth. As someone who acted in several Tarantino films, that means she also worked with Harvey Weinstein very often. So I got her kind of response to that situation. And we had a lot of conversation about how Hollywood can do better when it comes to protecting young men and women in the industry. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Laura Cayuette. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Film School podcast. Laura, thank you so much for making the time to do this today. I'm very glad to be here. I, I know we talked a little bit beforehand. You know, this show, I really love talking about the movies that made the people who are making movies, like the inspirations, the people that really just inspired and fueled another generation of, of filmmakers. Uh, who were some of the biggest influences that you remember watching at, a, at an early age that kind of sparked that creative juice to say, I want to do this? You know, I never I never had that experience. Mm. I never dreamed of being an actor when I was a child. I didn't actually understand that it was a job or a career or anything. Like I would watch I Dream a Genie. It never occurred to me that they were getting paid to do all that, running around yeah. and playing in costumes and all that. It just I grew up in a government town and people worked for the government. Yeah. So yeah. So I didn't know that was a job. I I, I knew you could be a teacher <laughs> or you could work for the government. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. Um yeah. So, so, you know, was it something that you were, I mean, I mean obviously you enjoyed watching movies. Oh, um, I had you know. favorite actors. Like when I was a kid, Haley Mills, oh my gosh, Disney movies, Haley Mills, I was cuckoo for. And, you know, there were, I, I was a huge fan of Vivian Lee's role mm. and, and still continue to be Vivian Lee's work in Gone with the Wind. Mm. And I didn't see Streetcar when I was a kid, but later understood that she really was the real deal. 
And, um, and as a kid, I was exposed to, um, my parents really were movie lovers. So mm. I actually saw quite a few movies as a child. So I, I, I do have favorites, but you know, your kid favorites are like Don Knotts, you know, <laughs> like, right. yeah. which is nothing to say that he shouldn't be in a favorite of yours as an adult when you right. understand what it takes to do that level of physical comedy. Right. But, but I'm just saying most people don't, you know, go, Oh, Leo, whatever. It's Don Knotts for me, you know? So yeah. Um, yeah. So the people I most admired growing up, I admired because they entertained me. Mm -hmm. They entertained me as a child. It's not like I understood what it was they were doing. Sure. Sure. Uh, Yeah. That's such a fascinating thing because there's, you know, whenever I talk to somebody, there's like the people they enjoyed watching. And then when that flip switches, you know, and they say, you know, okay, now I I have this idea. I want to be an actor. I want to become a director they either deepen their appreciation for the people that entertain them or they find new people who maybe they didn't think of, or they didn't find interesting, but now they're going, okay, I want to replicate that. That's who I want to be like. When I would say I never realized I never, I never knew. I mean, I guess I'd seen some things like California sweet or whatever, but I never understood what Maggie Smith was up to until I became an actor. And mm. then I was like, Oh my God, Maggie Smith is killing all of us. Right. All right. every one eyebrow. She steals everything. Yeah. What was the thing that flipped the switch for you where it was like, okay, going from being entertained to like now, boom, this is something that's possible. This is something I could do. Uh, what was it for you that, that did that? You know, this is so inconvenient that this is like a very common question. It happens. I just was asked this when I was working on a movie Saturday and, and I'm asked in a room full of people. And now you're asking me to tell in front of a bunch of strangers. And, and it's inconvenient for me because if I am face to face with somebody like I am with you, then I can gauge whether or not I feel comfortable sharing something spiritual with you. Mm. (laughs) But when I'm speaking to the masses, it's very it's a strange thing. And I've now been put in this position for 25 years Mm. of having to explain myself. I was called to this. Mm. I was, um, I was in my mid twenties. I was teaching college and getting ready to start my doctorate. I already had my master's, uh, in creative writing and English literature. And that was my plan for myself. That was what I dreamed of as a child. And, you know, that's what I wanted. Well, actually, originally, I wanted to be an astronaut and a race car driver. But then somebody explained to me that I had girl parts and and that apparently you can't do both things. So so I I wanted to be an author and a professor. That was my both of which I've achieved. by. I have now been an author and a professor. But um, that was my goal. And. So in my mid twenties, I was, I was modeling, um, part-time I was teaching school and I was running a dress shop, mm-hmm. uh, uh, special occasion, wedding gowns, etc. And, um, I had done a acting gig in, I mean, I'm sorry, a modeling gig in New York mm-hmm. and was taking the train home, uh, to DC and, I was, um, I was on the train, just sort of watching the roll go by, and I heard a voice mm. that said, "You're supposed to be an actor." Mm. Now, I, you know, that was that was in 1987, oh. and I still can't tell you why 
I'm supposed to be an actor. I cannot tell you whose voice that was, um, whether it was some inner thing screaming out to me or whether it was, um, you know, God or the universe or whatever you want to say. I have no idea. I have, mm. I've not, I'm not making a testimony here. I am yeah. telling you that I was called to this and I answered the calling. Did you come from a religious background? Like, did you have any explanation for this feeling or this phenomenon? No, or was it- but you know, when you hear a voice, I don't think you have to be religious. If you hear a voice, <laughs> you it know, makes you religious. <laughs> it didn't make me religious. It made me pay yeah. attention. Sure. No, I I would say I, I am a spiritual person. I've gone to church, you know, as of course, most, most kids, my, when you're my age, most of us went to church as kids. And, and then, yeah. you know, as you're older, you choose which church, you know, what's my flavor and all that kind of stuff. And sure. so, yeah, I did all the regular journey that people do. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say I was particularly religious. That said, I have had a number of strange um, moments that uh, defied explanation. And this was one of them. And, and, you know, I don't always listen to voices. Before Quentin told me I should be, Quentin Tarantino told me that I should become a director. uh, I had already been told that by Jon Favreau and Ben Stiller together, Mm. ganged up on me together (laughs) and I listen. So I could have ignored this voice, but my experience is that when you ignore a voice, whether it's slow down, there's going to be cops ahead or, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like whatever that voice is, if you don't listen to it, you end up later going, I should have listened to that. I knew it. I knew it. So I learned to listen to the voice by the time I was in my mid twenties. And I, and I did. Yeah. So, so listening to that voice, you know, pushing in this direction, did you have any inkling where to start? Like, was it no, just- <laughs> I had to research. <laughs> I didn't even know it was a job, much less how to start a career as that. No. And the first thing that happened was so discouraging because you got to keep in mind, this is pre-internet. So yeah. I'm not Googling anything, you know, right. I'm not landing on web pages for the schools to choose from, et cetera. No, I'm going to the library and checking out <laughs> books right. and reading books and and yeah, it was, you know, it was sort of like the montage in the movie where you see me in the bathtub reading, you see me at the <laughs> table reading, you know, everywhere I am, I'm reading, reading, reading. And what I ran into a number of times was that less than 1% of people who figure out how to get in the union, which back then it was even harder to get into the union, mm-hmm. way, way harder. Um, only less than 1% of the people who figure out that trick made enough money to live. Wow. And so that was very discouraging. I thought, well, why would I be called to do something that's going to make me poverty stricken? Hmm. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. yeah, but I did it anyway. Yeah, yeah. What, and what, what I got was, most of my education from those books. Yeah. What What was the What was the best piece of advice that you read that helped you kind of, you know, crack the door open and step into this? Because, like you said, it's such a small success rate, and Hollywood is full of people that want to be you know, A-list actors, they want to be the the star, you know, there's people that have that dream of just even getting on the screen. What was the the best piece of advice that you read where you said like, okay, this, I understand this to some extent. I understand this first step. Well, again, I, I don't really, really, I never wanted to be a star. I wanted to be a professor. So I wasn't really, and I didn't, I don't think I even understood how people saw me. I was making my money as a, as a model and didn't figure out that that meant that when people look at me, they just go model. 
I didn't, I just wasn't, I mean, I was, you know, I got my master's in 10 months. So I thought when people looked at me, they went smarty pants, you know, like <laughs> I just didn't, but from across the crowded room, I guess I didn't look like a straight A student. I looked like a, a model and I just never really put all that together. So I was sort of behind the curve, figuring out how the world perceived me. Sure. And so part of, of what an epiphany for me was realizing that, realizing that, oh, the person I am on the inside that's driving the car of this body, I don't see the same thing they're seeing. All they see is the mm. car. They don't see the driver until they mm. get to know me. Right. And so I had to accept that. And, and that has continued to happen throughout my entire career, right. is learning how to, how to deal with the fact that the person living inside of this, you know, five foot 10 body is not necessarily like, oh, yes, I'm a model. Let me strut my stuff down the catwalk for you and <laughs> strike a pose. And, you right. know, like, that's not the thoughts in my brain. My, the thoughts in my brain are, are <laughs> professor thoughts, writer thoughts, you know. So this is all sort of like off for me. The whole thing is like an education for me. I'm still figuring it out. Of right. Why am I doing this? Who am I in this? And all that. But but what an interesting journey rather than yeah. just saying, I'm a prof I'm a professor and a writer. And, and I figured that out at very young age. And that's what I've done my whole life. You know, that's, I guess, would have been a less fascinating journey. Right, um, right. The best, the best advice that I got in the early, early times was um, when I was reading those books. First of all, that 1% thing was probably the best information I mm. got because it let me know, bail now. Yeah. Or assume that this is going to be a super hard, you know, this is not going to be an easy thing to do. And, and, you know, I had gotten my master's in 10 months, so I was used to hard and not easy and yeah. all battles, et cetera. So it's not like I, and that wasn't the first time I'd proven I could do something that was difficult. So I guess I, 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 that was the thing is like, oh, this is going to be a huge challenge. This is yeah. going to test your ability to rise to an occasion. And and the occasion being me. Yeah. Um, so that was the probably the first thing that spun me. But um, I also, during all that reading, found the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, which is the oldest acting school in the world, even mm. older than all the ones in England, and one of the best. Mm. And they happened to be having auditions in D.C. like three weeks later after I found them in a book. So yeah. that set me off on my course. It wasn't really advice so much as like, well, here's a school you should pay attention to. Yeah. And of course, again, couldn't Google it. So I had to research it and call them on the telephone, you know, that was attached to the wall. And so, yeah. yeah. Well, well I'm, I'm, I'm curious on that perspective because obviously very academic. You came from that background. You're used to working hard, studying, researching. Whenever you listen to any filmmakers talk, you get one of two things when it comes to education and film school and, and that you have the people that go, you know, film school is a waste of time. Just go make films. That's your film school. Um, and then you've got people that say, you know, go find someone to coach you, teach you. Um, you know, do you, do you think that, you know, the time going into and educating for acting, going to like doing acting school, do you think that's a worthwhile thing for people? It's a must step in that road. Or do you think it's something where people should just get into it and get to work? I actually don't know anybody that hasn't had any training at all. That's not a real mm. thing. Yeah. No. 
No, I, I taught graduate school students uh, in the film program at UNO, at University of New Orleans, um, how to work with actors. And they they were all obviously people who chose the path of get educated through a formal training system. And, and that is one way to go. It, it's something that I did. It's something that uh, lots of people did. It's not what I did when I became a director. I didn't have time to go back to college again, yeah. get yet another degree to prove that I knew how to, I followed the Tarantino school of directing, yeah. which is that, um, you know, he watched, he worked at that video store for 10 years and he watched right. every video they had on a shelf. Right. And one reason we connected is that I worked at a movie theater for eight years tearing mm. after I got my degrees. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first thing I did when I got to L.A. was um, I got a job tearing tickets at a movie theater mm. and I watched it was it had 18 screens. I watched 18 screens worth of movies every chance I got. Right. And that was that was my education. And it's very common that that is a story that, you know, the idea that your education is coming from observation. Right. of other greats doing their work and other crappy people doing their work. You know, you learn a lot from mm. mistakes too, other people's and your own. Um, I remember one time Richard Dreyfus um, took me with him to an acting class where he was speaking. And one of the students asked, you know, what is your process when you get a role? What is your process? And he, uh, he said, you know, what do you do to prepare? And he said, Oh, nothing. I knew him and I can tell you the guy tortured himself for every role. So continues to torture himself for every role. He prepares himself like crazy. He just, it's like driving a clutch. It's hard to explain it to somebody else because you mm. get so used to it that you don't really realize that you're doing all these things. And he's been acting since he was nine years old. Yeah. So to him, explaining his process would be like explaining what it's like to eat or what, you know, like mm -hmm. he just does just it. Do it. Yeah. You just do it. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but he is also hyper educated. He didn't go to school for that. He went to Beverly high, mm -hmm. but at Beverly high, his best friends were, um, now let me remember all the names. I'm aging Albert Brooks, um, Rob Reiner, Mm -hmm. And um, and Larry Bishop, right. uh, who is Joey Bishop's son, um, and Rob Reiner was Carl Reiner's son, and um, wow. they yeah. And Albert Brooks back then was Albert Einstein. He hadn't changed his name yet. So wow. uh, anyway, so the four of them ran around pretty good together, and two of them had grown up in the business. So you know, like even as a child, he was being led by yeah. mentors and it was just the dads of his friends at school but you know and so all of us whether it's quentin with the video store or you know all, all of us i i've learned way more after going to the american academy than i did at the american academy but everything i learned at the american academy was essential not just to my ability to get into the industry but to my confidence level, my first movie was just surrounded with Academy Award winners. And yeah. I would have choked yeah. if I hadn't felt like, you know what? I've done Shakespeare. I've done Brecht. I've done Ibsen. I can handle a couple of lines in this stupid movie. 
Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you've worked with, I mean, so, like I said, you mentioned already so many names, Richard Dreyfus. you know, um, it, I mean, he's somebody that when I first reached out, you said that was one of the people that was a big inspiration to you. You'd obviously, I mean, everybody's seen a Richard Dreyfus movie, like at least Jaws, like everybody's at right. least seen <laughs> one yeah, or close encounters or yeah. what about what Bob? About Bob? Or, you know, right. And <laughs> And if but, they haven't, they should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, pause this interview and go watch that and come back, right. you know? it's But it's your first project listed is working with Richard Dreyfus, which is fascinating, Like, and I'm sure you can tell the story, but it's, you know, your first project is working with someone who you'd watched. It's like, this is a yeah. hero. No, that's, um, that's a weird thing, and it's something that's happened over and over in my career now, but that is a weird thing is that um, you get to – work with and or meet um, people who you have admired since you were a little thing. And American Graffiti, (laughs) I have to tell you, was one of my favorite movies of, uh, is one of my favorite movies Mm -hmm. of all time, but it is, it was a bit of an obsession for me. You know, when you're a kid uh, in the era I grew up in, you know, we, if we wanted to see a movie more than one time, we had to get dressed, get transportation, get money and go to the movie theater again and find a seat and sit with the popcorn and all, you know, again and again and again. And so when somebody my age tells you they've seen a movie 13 times, that's what they're saying. They're saying they got dressed, got in the car, you know, didn't have invested. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. So I was like that with American Graffiti. I just had to see it over and over and over. And when it came on television back in the day, I was like, ah, because then it was running all the time on television. Then I, I bought the soundtrack. And then I, I'm going to say, this is a strange thing. In high school, back in the early 80s, late 70s, I don't know. I'm pretty old. Um, I bought a screenplay mm. of American Graffiti. They had one at the bookstore and I bought the screenplay and it was the first time in my whole life that I had ever bought a screenplay and the first time in my whole life that I ever read a screenplay Wow, was American Graffiti. So So there's a huge connection. That was a, that was a thing that I brought with me. And also then came Close Encounters, which is again, to this day, one of the best movies. One of Spielberg's best, maybe the best. I mean, yeah. It's, Certainly it's one of my, I have, you know, top two favorite sci-fi movies of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Top it's, three. It's, top three. it's a masterpiece. <laughs> you know, like his collaboration with Spielberg on both Jaws and I mean, they're two masterpiece. Yeah, like great. there's not one frame of either one that I would change. You know, it's, it, they're yeah. amazing. Um, it's funny. We, we had talked beforehand, you know, a little bit about, you know, working with Richard Dreyfuss and, and, you know, when you see that in your first credit on IMDb, you go, Oh, that's cool. Richard Dreyfus, you know, picked Laura to come be in a movie. And that's not what happened. So <laughs> no, it's he, not. you landed <laughs> Richard Dreyfus the job. How does that happen? Like what 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 fell into place for that to work out? Well, I already had I had met Richard in New York and then um through the acting school? Uh well, yes, in a way, insofar as um that school, the American Academy, they used to get uh and I hope still do, free tickets from Broadway. Hmm for uh, whatever was running and had an empty seat. And so it was almost uh, always going to be a matinee show. Okay. And I had a different schedule than a lot of the other people in my school. So I was taking night courses and could go to the theater in the daytime. 
Wow. So I saw, I don't know, like 75 plays. In the- what an education by itself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, if you want to be great, you have to watch greatness and understand what it is and all the different colors of it. Um, so I had a friend, have a friend named Jannard Burks, who you should IMDB. He's a great mm. actor himself, um, who uh, he was also doing what I was doing. He was going and seeing all these plays, but he was taking it a step further and he would wait by the stage door and talk to the actors afterward. So he brought me with him one time to do that. And, and when I realized how easy that was, I thought, then this is what I'm doing from now on. Mm-hmm. And so those 75 plays I saw, many of them, I would choose whoever was the performance I was most drawn in by, mm-hmm. most impressed by, most affected by. And I would wait by the stage door and I would let everybody else sort of get away. And then I would focus on that one person. And say, I have a question I'm going to ask you. And all but one person was very, very kind and willing. Um, you know, I was smart about timing and all that. And, yeah. and so all but one person was very, very forthcoming, giving me great answers. And I was getting ready to move to L.A. And the very last play that I saw starred three people. Glenn Close. Wow. Gene Hackman and Richard Dreyfus. I mean, that's a play. That's unreal. Yeah, <laughs> it was Death and the Maiden, and um, which later became a film starring none of those people. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, did Gene do it? Maybe Gene did it. Anyway, I ended up later doing a movie with Gene Hackman, Enemy of the State. That was pretty early in my career. Um, Glenn came out, and I was able to speak to her because she came out very early. And she had this huge bodyguard who has since passed away. Um, And the three of us hung out while I asked her this question. And then I waited for uh, Jean, I let pass. And then I waited for, because Jean's character, he had been in the the play and the movie Death Death and Maiden. That character is tied to a chair and gagged for a lot of, (laughs) so performance wasn't the one that, so I let him pass. And then Richard came out and I, you know, I did the same thing I always did, which I would wait for all the autograph hounds and, you know, all the, mm-hmm. the people who had come and spent a lot of money and wanted something else for that or, you know, and, and so I waited for all them to pass. And then I was the last one left and said, you know, can we walk and talk? I'd love to ask you one question. So mm-hmm. I asked him the same question. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it is. Cause I know you're going to ask, um, I asked them all the same question. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing when you were starting out, what would it be? Mm. And I loved his answer. It was a great answer. It was about fear and not letting it make your decisions for you. And we became friends in that he was the last of the people that I met at those stage doors. And we, we just hit it off, off of that moment. He loved the question. I loved his answer. And we just hit it off. And that was 30 years ago. Um, Yeah. So we stayed in touch as I moved to LA, which is where he was from. And so when I had a friend um, who was producing a series of short films directed by actors, and I think 
I'm trying to remember some of the other people that had done. In any case, he, he was saying, listen, I know you're friends with Richard. Would Richard like to direct a short film? Hmm. And I knew that the answer was yes. And so I said, yeah. And he said, well, can you make that happen? And I said, sure. So I put together Richard with my friend and mm. uh, Richard and another friend of his wrote a half hour script and they made this movie and I got one line. It starred Ann Archer and uh, Billy Peterson, William mm. Peterson. And, um, and I had one line as the waitress <laughs> and, and that's that. So when you look at my IMDb, it says, you know, I had this line as a waitress thing in this first yeah. thing. But it wasn't as humble a beginning as it looks like because I created that job for myself. Yeah. And, and I, for him. Yes. Yeah. And I yeah. should have probably been a producer, but I didn't understand that at the time. And nobody told me. Right. Yeah. Nobody clued you in on the show business side of, of how no. it works. No. Um, yeah. It's it's amazing because that's something that, you know, reading through your book and I mean, talk about no small parts, you know, starting in that role. But there's so much behind that and so much power behind that. You know, one thing throughout your career is you've been a connector between so many people and you've been a constant with so many people. It might people. be why I'm an actor. It might be that that's yeah. what the voice meant. I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because there are. There's so many pieces where, one, you've connected with so many people, you know, and who see the talent that you have and they resonate with something Thank in you. you, you know. And, and that's, to me, I always find that interesting because there's people that get you know, they blow up for a period of time and they are huge for, yeah. or, or someone tries to make them huge for a couple of years, you know, yeah. and then they kind of fade away. When I see people who are consistently working, directors return to them time and time again, or producers go to them time. Those are the people that are really interesting to me because, you know, the fact that you, you know, you've mentioned you've, you've been working now for, you know, uh, a long time consistently <laughs> in, in a, a lot of different roles, a lot of different capacities. Um, and with a lot of the same people time and time again, what quality in you, and it's hard to be introspective like this, but what do you think a, a director like a Tarantino who could cast anybody sees in you? Or what do you think a Richard Dreyfus to give you the trust as a young actor to say, like, I'll take a look at, you know, what you're presenting to me. What, what do you think it is that, that frequency there? What is it that makes them pay attention to me? Yeah. I mean, you'd probably be better to ask them. I <laughs> I think, look, I'm going to be honest with you that I do think as disadvantageous as it is to be a woman in my industry, as disadvantageous as it is on so many levels that it's staggering, yeah. the advantage in the world of being a attractive female or whatever is that you get five minutes of attention from pretty much anything. <laughs> You, right. you can, you can get five, you know, I, I, I can get five minutes with the president and a Pope or what it doesn't matter because they, you know, there's some sort of biological thing happening there. That's, you know, beyond our control that if you're an attractive person, uh, people will give you a little bit of attention to figure out if they have any use for you or something. I don't know. It could right. get into your world. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure what the five minutes is for, but I do know that that I can get five minutes with pretty much anybody. Mm. And so uh, some of that is just biology. I think that, that, you know, I'm a pretty girl and you're talking about powerful men. Mm. So, or I was a pretty girl. Now I'm a, a, a fading beauty or whatever, <laughs> this age, whatever this, I'm not a girl anymore. That's what the point. Um, 
but that that coupled with that I've never ever ever been confused that this is a tough job and you should be really prepared for it and I have always been that way whether it was spending three years getting educated in Mm -hmm. uh, you know at the American Academy or doing off off Broadway in New York to get ready to be a performer or whether it was, um, you know, doing short films and student films, whatever, to learn how to be in front of camera, or all the classes I took once I moved to LA, because I took, you know, I was there 18 years, I took pretty much 18 years of classes, you know, so like, I was never not educating myself and not taking this career extremely seriously. Right. Yeah. And the people that I met have met along the way, like in Ivana Chubbuck's class, sitting with me, were... Joanna Cassidy, who had been working since the 60s or 70s. I don't know. Joanna's in her 70s now. So how long has she been working? But Blade Runner wasn't the beginning of her career. And that was, uh, you know, that was a while ago. And uh, RuPaul sat next to me. RuPaul had already had an entire career before drag and, you know, all the, I mean, not his drag, I'm saying drag race, the TV show. And, um, you know, it, like the people, it, it was Kim Fields, it was David Faustino, it was all these people who had been working since the 70s and 80s were in my class with me, still pursuing and still working. And many of us, the best was ahead. You know, Joanna Cassidy had a way better career on television after the time that we started class together. RuPaul's career is just... Yeah, it's biggest it's ever been. I, yeah. Yes. And and particularly as an actor, very impressive that um, TV show Queen and something about the her and the kid. I mean, him and the kid, him and drag and the kid. Mm-hmm. That was a great I mean, God, he did great work in that. So I guess I've always understood and respected that this is not this is not a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. Yeah. This is a vocation. This yeah. is a this is something you do. Yeah. It's some all day, every day. Like it's. It's something you are, you know, you have to inhabit the life of it. That's, and, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, when people see that in somebody else, when they, you know, like when I worked with um, Dennis Christopher in uh, Django, um, I had fallen in love with Dennis Christopher's character in Breaking Away, which I think was in the late seventies, early eighties. And um I just, I thought his character was just so, so well portrayed. So well portrayed. I mean, just loved that character. Loved the movie. Again, saw it a bunch of times in the theater. And when he and I worked together, he was like me. He's a cat, you know, he's conservatory trained. So his whole body has been trained as an instrument, whether that's voice, posture, you know, all the things you need to create a character, all of it had been trained just like it had been with me. But, you know, there were also people working with us who had come up through the comedy circuit or who had mm-hmm. come up through um, just flying by the seat of their pants or people like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, Leo was born to do this, been doing mm-hmm. it since he was three. It is his calling in a different way. You know, like yeah. he was born for this and he will teach us about this. He's like a little Buddha that mm-hmm. was, he just came fully cooked, you know? Yeah. But when he works 
he hires people to help him learn certain things he needs to learn, whether it's an accent or a, a you know, a physical uh, trait or what, you know, he hires people to help him and train him. Mm-hmm. So anybody who's serious about this gets it, that it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's really hard work and you spot other hard workers in a crowd. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that, that's what respected me. I think that's what I'm get, getting at. Yeah. That's what's coming through in your answer. And now I think about even the book <laughs> you're taking, and I mean, it's in the name of the book, no small parts, you know, cause I, I think, I think some people who think about doing anything, this could go beyond acting, but any role, we all have this self-importance of like, okay, this is my stepping stone to the big thing. And, and I think for a lot of people, there's a struggle when they're in those small opportunities, they don't take it seriously because they're above it already in their mind. And for you, you know, I loved in your book, you talk about um, working on Django Unchained, you know, which again, your part came from taking very seriously a very short scene within Kill Bill that gave Tarantino the, okay, I'm going to use you again. I'm going to write a part with you in mind. But within Jenko, you talk about prep preparing, you talk about using the fan, you know, and, and doing all of this work to develop, yeah, to develop this character, five months of prep for a character that someone could have came in and said, I'm just the throwaway and the sister character in the movie. And, but you can see that even though those scenes aren't in the movie, you feel like you're just as much a part of the movie as Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who is throughout the entire runtime. You don't feel like you're right. just coming in and phoning in the scene. And that's that's what I'm getting from your answer, is that that taking it so seriously and throwing yourself 100% into what could be considered a small role. You know, well, and I do that no matter what the, you know, I just, did, like I mentioned, I did a movie on Saturday, and that was um, two scenes small part, less than, less than, less than five minutes of film time that opens their movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't get, the, I, they had a sort of emergency situation. So I didn't actually mm-hmm. get the part until Friday and I worked wow. Saturday. So guess how much prep time I had, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, so I didn't have very much prep time, obviously, but I know how to use it and I didn't use it just memorizing lines. I know that somebody will give me my line if I forget my line, but they're not going to be able to tell me who that person is and why she's doing what she's doing. So I had to research that and I didn't spend the, my one day just memorizing words. I figured, you know, it's a small part. Somebody will yell the words to me if I need them. (laughs) Yeah. I am going to spend this time creating a character who is a believable human being who is who this script is wanting to open their movie with. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, I, I think it was in Karen Grassley's uh, autobiography. I was just reading where she said, um, you know, memorization is the easiest part, you know, oh, of, what did they pay <laughs> me to memorize stuff. Right. If they could pay me to memorize stuff, I'd be making a fortune doing just right. auditions. Right. Well, and and like, you have it, any idea how much stuff I have to memorize for auditions? Right. It's exactly that though. It's, it's, who are you though? No one's going to tell you they can shout a line. They can't tell you who you are. That's a really cool insight. And that's again, you know, that's interesting seeing that replicated amongst successful people, that mindset of just, it's not just remembering the line, knowing when to say it. And that's, that's another thing I've noticed too, um, is you can always tell good actors because when they're in a dialogue scene, you can see that they're not just thinking about what their next line is. You know, you can watch when you watch a bad project, you can see someone, where, you know, 
they'll say their line and then they'll stare at the actor, you know, and, 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 you know, have you ever caught an actor doing the other person's lines with their mouth? I've never seen it in a final, in a final, I've read stories about people doing it. Um, there's a, I forget what the movie is. There's a child actor in a movie. Um, I do remember actually seeing a clip. I don't even remember what the movie is. I probably shouldn't even say it if I did, but I remember there was a, there was a child actor and they were like moving their head along with the lines of like, right. you know, what they're supposed right. to say. Um, but it, I love when you could see it, an actor there in their eyes, you can see their character thinking and feeling something while the other person's saying, you know, that's, that's really cool to me. Well, listening is such a critical part of acting, no matter how big your part is, but the smaller your part is, the more critical listening, the more important, <laughs> the less you're yeah, saying, because you want to get that screen time while the celebrity is talking. So yeah. while the main character is having their moment, you want them to, you want the camera to check in with your reaction. Yeah. So you better right. have some. You better care. <laughs> right. You know, or they're the not going to cut back to care yeah. about what the lead actor is saying in your scene. The more the camera is going to want to, you know, the editor and all that is going to choose your reaction over their words. When it comes to that, when it comes to standing out in a scene, because you've done this very well, obviously, in so many different projects, you stand out, even if it's standing out to the people involved in it who are going to be, you know, providing a next job or opening another door you found a way to stand out even with the smallest of characters. You know, you've written so much about that. I, where's the balance between trying to take over a scene and trying ah. to be trying to go overboard. Like you always hear stories about the extra that's going, doing too much to try to get attention or the, the actor that has one line, they, they overdo it. You know, what's, what's the balance between taking over the scene and adding an, a noticeable, you know, character or something that's going to stand out. Well, first of all, if you're the lead, you're allowed to steal the scene. So, you know, I, I write ex- extensively in my book about my first experience working with uh, working on a giant set. And it was Shirley MacLaine and uh, whatever, a cast of thousands. And Shirley stole the scene right out from all of us, other people, yeah. including other Academy Award winners, et cetera. And um, she's allowed to do that because she's the star of that movie and so if she steals the scene in a scene where she had no lines whatsoever so i never saw it coming then fine more power to her it's her movie so even if it's not her scene it's her movie so she can steal it for those of us who are supporting cast um it is trickier because i i am a a little bit of a thief and and i don't consider it stealing i consider it owning I earn my screen time. I own my part and earn my screen time. And if you don't, while you're working with me, woe befall you. Mm. It's not my fault if you can't hold up your end of the screen. Wow. So to me, that can be dangerous a, a game to play because if you outplay the lead and somebody doesn't like it, they'll just cut it. Mm-hmm. But if you do it in a way that real, I mean, everything I know about actors is that everything I'm doing when I'm acting is about the other character. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing my job well, then the more I get invested in my moment and the more I make it, you know, a bigger moment, if that's all about the other character, I'm still serving the lead. I'm still serving the star and I shouldn't end up on the cutting room floor. And mm-hmm. I don't. You know, well, it becomes all. less competition and elevating each other. Yes, you're, I am promoting the scene. I am promoting how big their deal is. And, you know, 
because I'm elevating and escalating the stakes in the scene for the star. Right. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really powerful. That's a, that's a great explanation. I remember you telling the story in the book about her taking the scene and, and you thinking like, that's what it is. Like, that's how you do it. That's oh, the, and, and the biggest thing I learned was give yourself permission to steal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. the biggest thing is she just totally dominated that scene in a way that was jaw dropping and eye opening. But it was also and and in a way I could repeat, but um, mm-hmm. but it was also, you know, she earned it. She earned it. Yeah. She didn't steal that scene by being an, a, a jerk. Right. Yeah. Or being over the top. Or, to, right. Yeah. She wasn't trying to steal the scene because she thought she was better than us. She stole the scene because what she was doing was more interesting than what we were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, I, I, I know we're getting near the end of our time here, but I, I, I want to ask about this well, because first of all, just so you know, I can flex a little bit. Um, okay. And you can always revisit me at another date. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Because there's so much, I mean, there's so much in your book and so many notes and, and I just, it's, I'm, I'm fascinated by, your thought process, you know, and, and there's a, there's a billion questions. Uh, but what, one of the things that is really important to me, um, I, I do another show. I talk with sexual abuse uh, survivors. And so I, uh, that's been part of my life for the last two years doing advocacy work in that area. And I was really grateful for the section of your book where you talked about, you know, the me too movement and, and adding that into the book, I think was very powerful. And as much as we talk about working with, you know, Tarantino, on the flip side of that, there's a heavy shadow that looms over those projects and Harvey Weinstein, you know, which that, that name has, has, you know, been in the news nonstop for the last several years. Um, you know, you, you've never had a experience with Harvey Weinstein directly like that, but it was something that, not um, that, no, not like, not a sexual one. I will, I will go ahead and say as a character witness to that man, that is a terrible person. That is a right. terrible person. He's yeah. terrible to everybody. And also there was sexual stuff and that didn't happen to me. Mm, yeah. It, I mean, one, just w- were you nervous writing about this at all? Because I mean, obviously sure. I mean, it's, it's a big thing. And in as much as you can say, you know, there's, you can't fire someone for speaking out about something like that. I mean, it's people that do speak out about this stuff get, in trouble. And there's people. Well, one that thing I didn't do was I didn't, I didn't tell any of my own personal stories and mm. I didn't. And then that way I did not name names. And yeah. so that helps protect me because now there's no one person who I've called out yeah, and therefore there's no threat to any yeah. one person. I'm, I am talking about the industry in general. And as you know, my own part, I am mm-hmm. talking about what I did to contribute to that culture and what, you know, the culture of silence the culture yeah. of allowance, the culture yeah. of acceptance of the unacceptable, allowance of the unallowable, and silence about everything that ever happened to me, everything I ever witnessed, every, yeah. everything I knew was happening. Every, I was silent about all of it, just as almost every single woman in the history of Hollywood has been. Right. Yeah. When you yeah when you look at these situations like a Harvey Weinstein, you, you sit there and go like, how does it happen? How does it get to this point? You know, how do you have a culture that's this this silent? What do you think contributed to that? Like, how does someone get away with that for so long? And, and do, I mean, obviously we've Harvey Weinstein's being 
dealt with, but there's still issues in the industry. Yeah, we, you know, one guy, one guy, one guy out of many problems solved. You know, we you know, need, what ten thousand men, and right. we got one, and so problem solved. Right. Um, yeah, no, uh, I would say the setup for me being silent started the day I was born, and they said it's a girl. Hmm. Because the second that you were born in, in my era as a female, um, we were told often and, and in no uncertain terms that you don't say things like that. You just don't accuse men of anything. And if you do, plan to lose everything. Mm. So I am just one of the millions of 57-year-old women who was groomed from birth to take it. Yeah. Just take it. And and if you say anything you'll lose everything. And yeah. and how could that not be true? Men ran everything when yeah. I was born. So um so I would say the grooming started way before Hollywood. But yeah. by the time I got into the industry, I'd already modeled for 10 years. I'd already, you know, like I'd already seen my share and been through my share of craziness. And and I'd been a girl my whole life, you know, so yeah. I'd been being treated the way girls get treated in a world where silence is the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's a really great system for predators. Yeah. Um, heck, that's a great system just for opportunists, you know, just like right. a guy on a date with a drunk girl kind of thing, you know, <laughs> like that's right. a great system. So I would say that Hollywood is not responsible for me being a, a silent partner. I just arrived that way, as so many women my age did, arrived that way, already groomed and ready to be part of the machinery of silence. But within that community, there's this other brainwashing, grooming, whatever, you know, systematic reshaping of your thought processes that comes through, I guess the word we use now would be exceptionalism, that our community is exceptional and we do things a different way and mm. we can't be held to the regular rules because they don't really apply to us because we're special. So like, for example, shoulder massages. Mm. I'll bet at IBM, they don't sit around giving each other shoulder massages, but at my job, it's, relatively common that, you know, we work 18, 20 hour days. Um, it, it can get grueling. You could be wearing a costume that weighs 40 pounds. Like it can be really physically. Yeah. Uh, and on higher budget films, they might hire a masseuse to come in and have one of those little things where you can stick your, you know, lay forward and they'll just grab your shoulders real quick and then send you back out. But you know, <laughs> Who has that kind of money? That's there's almost this is like three movies that have ever yeah. done that, and everybody else is having to make do. So we all rub each other's shoulders. Plus, crew never gets that masseuse, you know. Like they have to rub each other's shoulders. So we just it's just something that happens. Yeah. So I when I would hear seminars or whatever on TV, they would do you know maybe it'd be in a sitcom, they'd have a joke or whatever, and it would be about rubbing shoulders. I'd think, well, that doesn't really apply to us because. Mm. No, exceptional. We're different. We have different rules. And I applied that to nude scenes, sex scenes, kissing scenes, what, you know, all that stuff. We're different. We're special. The rules Mm. don't apply. 
And then one day, I guess about seven or eight years ago, I said something about work. And my now husband said, that's against the law. Mm. And I said, no, it's not. It's not. And he goes, <laughs> yes, it is. And I goes, no, no, no. I'm sure it is like where you work, but no, not, <laughs> not in our, not. not in our area. And he goes, no. it's a federal law, a federal law. I'm not making this up. There's a federal law. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, but that doesn't apply to us because, and I literally spent you know, like 20 minutes arguing yeah. over whether that federal law applied to my industry because my industry is different, especially, and then, you know, yeah. so I, I mean, I have to say that is systemic. That is, that is, we do have an, an unusual job and not nobody else I know in any other career that I have lots of friends and lots of careers and none of them have ever had to like get in their underwear and make out with a stranger in front yeah. of 200 people, you know, yeah. like that's weird. It's a weird job. And I do a weird job and I, right. I, I guess it's confusing. Where's the line between right. weird and illegal? Right. Yeah, that was an interesting conversation. I know you mentioned Diane Franklin in, in your book, um, talking about convention that, and I asked her because she, you know, she makes no bones about like her career in the eighties. I mean, she was the girl. I mean, she was the the dream girl. She was doing nudity, and you know, so, and it is a very, um, it's a it's a very thin line between being exploitative and you know doing something for the art of a of a movie you know and and she i mean she talks about in her book you know after signing the contract after shooting her scene you know sitting in the car with a producer who's saying can you do full nudity can you do that and it's you know you don't have that conversation working like you said at ibm you don't have that conversation working at a bank you know they know what they would say or do in a moment like that. No, you don't. No, it's your no, career. You don't. Yeah. You're terrified. You finally got your break and they're going to fire you if you won't go from what they gr- agreed to do to what you never agreed to do. And they're going to fire you for something like uh, not, not taking your top off or what, you know, yeah. like, so that's confusing and it's yeah. not something men by and large have to deal with. It is a female issue in our industry of that we sign contracts. We have, but sometimes we're not warned in advance about things that are going to happen on set. Sometimes uh, things are not as they were described. Sometimes, you know, there's all sorts of things, but Diane actually had a rougher ride with that than I did. I I have to say most of, I I think people familiar with my career know I spent a lot of time in my underwear, but um, I actually have been pretty blessed that, um, I haven't been made to feel hyper vulnerable in those sure. moments. And, and I, I am a, a guy girl, a, you know, a good sport or yeah. whatever. So I'm used yeah. to a little bit of rough talk and I'm used to a little rough behavior and it doesn't scare me as much as it might scare somebody that doesn't spend as much time with dudes as I do. So <laughs> sure. I, um, yeah, I, I, th- I think I had a little bit of a different experience because, you know, when, when guys would, try and push me. I, I, I was so used to guys. I would just push back. Sure. Not about the work, you know, not in a way that was about asserting my power because I had none, but in a way where like, if, 
if they came at me like, you know, just kidding, just checking out, just seeing what'll happen, I would come back with like, ah, you're so funny. I'm not doing that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And then, then if it got real, then I would be in the same situation Diane had been put in. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah. What, what do you think the, I mean, obviously it's probably not a good answer to this, but I mean, everyone's trying to figure out what do you do about this? The culture has been there. I mean, that just the story of the casting couches as old as Hollywood. I mean, and it was a lot more blatant than it is now. I mean, there's studios where you can see the room, you know, I mean, um, but even now it's still an issue. Like we said, I mean, Harvey Weinstein is a drop in the bucket of, you know, a very widespread problem. How do we course correct this? You know, I mean, obviously I think just having more women in positions of power as, you know, in addition to men is, is big, but what do you think, how do we get well, this the conversation? Same way bigger, that happened right? with me. The same thing that happened with me. You start at birth. Mm. You start at birth teaching women that they are just as valuable as men. And you start at birth teaching men that they're no more valuable than women. Mm. And you do that from birth. And then mm. you have broken the grooming. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you're an adult by the time you get into the world of the grooming and you might be able to see it for what it is. Ah, mm. you're trying to groom me. I won't have mm. it. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a great answer and it's a simple answer but it's it's true and it's um you know i talk about that with my other show all the time like there's the conversation just around it needs to change you know and and even you know even the some of the stories you hear you're just like the the ones that scare me are the ones where it's not it's not ill intention it's just second nature you know it's like like you mentioned like you mentioned the guy you know you hang out with a lot of guys, you hear the crude jokes and stuff. And it's like, you know, I even think like, you know, growing up in high school, like there weren't people saying like, Hey, don't say that, you know, or don't, don't do that. But it's just, it's, it's like unintentional, just misogyny or unintentional. I do it. I I don't do it as much now, but before the me too movement, I did it all the time. Yeah. You have to learn. You have to unlearn and learn women in my own way. Sure, sure. But I, you know, the thing about the book is that I wanted to give people a resource. Uh, the reason I included the Me Too chapter, mm-hmm. and like you said, it was difficult to decide to to approach it at all. To you yeah. know, say those, it's easy not to, which is one of the reasons. Way it's easier not thrived. to. Yeah. But I had already been planning to do the second edition of Known Small Parts. It had been seven years, and there had been a lot of changes in the industry. And right. one of the biggest was self taping. We had suddenly gone from all this wisdom I had to tell you about how to score at an audition was yeah. suddenly like, uh, does this even COVID hits. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Cause I was teaching people how to be good in a room and now they're not in the room anymore. So I thought, well, I have to do something about self-taping. I just, I owe that to yeah. my readers that they would get an update on how do you audition in this new world? Because this self-taping thing is not going away. It's not going away. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter if COVID disappeared tomorrow, which of course it won't. But even if it did, it, it doesn't matter. The, the self-taping is here to stay. So I knew I wanted to involve that, include that in a second edition. I also knew that I wanted to include uh, information about being at conventions because conventions had changed so much from a place where careers go to die to being where you might launch your next Marvel movie. It's an essential now. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, well, I need to address that. And that's how Diane Franklin became involved. Yeah. In, and um, yeah, so I, I wanted to do those two editions and I wanted to do an overhaul for technical stuff and, you know, just mm-hmm. things that have changed in the last seven years. Um, when the Harvey thing happened, 
you have to imagine that for somebody like me, it was like I woke up, turned on the TV, and God was in handcuffs. He was the most powerful person in that entire city, industry. I mean, he was it. He was the guy. And he was in handcuffs. And it separated me from myself. Like I had an odd out-of-body experience of like, what is happening? Is this real? Like, is that real? You know, like I'm looking at the TV going, huh? So I saw an opportunity for change. And I started with me. And then I wanted to share with others because I knew I couldn't possibly be the only person who was having trouble figuring all this out. And then I got very inspired to share with people who hadn't yet entered our industry or who were just entering our industry or who only been doing this for a couple of years that they would have this information starting out. Yeah. The reality of the industry and what, what all was there. Yeah. And then for those of us who've already been doing this for a hundred years, I wanted them to have the information of what do you do if it happens to you? What do you do if you witness it? What do you do? You know, all that, the, what do you do's, how do you handle it from the second you either witness or are, you know, involved in something to how do you take care of yourself afterward in, in, you know, self-care. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and, and there's a lot of resources listed there, places people can reach out to, whether it's, uh, to report or whether it's to receive help. And then in the meantime, the union has changed their website. They've developed an app. Like now there's all sorts of tools for reporting, whether it's anonymously or on the record, you can put your story And like, if something happens, whether you're a witness or whether it's occurring to you, you're the target, um, you can now upload all the details, the time and who who was witnessing, you know, all the details, you can put all that into the app and not send it anywhere, not name it, just have it there dated in case you ever need it. So, you know, there are resources now, and I, I wanted to make sure people knew Here's what you do in this situation. Right. Because nobody is sitting down and telling you that before, you know, and, and I think that's so valuable and, and important and just having, I mean, even the anonymous reporting is so huge, you know, like it takes the pressure off of a production assistant who's saying, how do I report Harvey Weinstein? You know, right. like, who do I go to? He's right. the boss. He's the boss he's, of bosses. He's God. How do you yeah. report God? Yeah. Right. It's, it's crazy, but I, I, I appreciate you putting that chapter in. It's, it's, it's so important. And, you know, it's, you know, I deal, my, my other show, I deal with clergy abuse. You know, it's the same issues. You've got people in very, I mean, literally people yeah. claiming to be oracles for God, you know, God. And, and, and abusing. <laughs> um, it's, it's so powerful, but I, I, I want to transition here. I, I like asking a couple of quick questions at the end. And yes. like I said, I definitely it. hope Rapid this isn't the last time because I've got a billion questions for you. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I guess I'll ask you this first. Um, you know, you, you talked about the question you asked every actor. I'm going to turn that on you. Um, if you could go back to the beginning of your career and tell yourself one thing, uh, what would it be? Uh, if I could tell myself one thing, I don't think it'd be the same thing I would tell everybody else. Um, because mm. I actually already had this information from being uh, a model and being, you know, I had yeah. already been involved in the different 
version of, of this industry of being in front of other people. Uh, I would go back and tell other people, um, this, this is not a get rich quick scheme. And you are not one break away from being discovered. And mm. it's not that you don't have an agent or that your agent sucks. It's not that. So don't focus so much on the getting an agent and the, you know, finding your break. And if I had understood, and I say this in the book, if I had understood that all that time that I was waiting for this break um, was time that I was actually achieving a lot of other things, I would have used it better. I would have, I would have at least seen it differently. I would have understood that I was already having my career. I was already doing the part of my career that comes before the next parts. And that, that I, all the times that I would say, but I'm ready to work now. I'm ready to work now. Yes, I was ready to work. But the thing is, is that I was being included in Academy Award winning movies. And so I had to be better than ready. I had to be good. Yeah. 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 So it's not a good get rich quick scheme. It's not something where you're just going to, Nobody is waiting to discover you. That is not how it works. I think when, you know, I use the analogy of basketball in my book of that nobody sits at home watching basketball games from the NBA and goes, you know, once I get an agent, I am going to be an NBA player. (laughs) No, you have to do the work to be an NBA player. And then probably somebody will notice that you're better and different than everybody around you. Mm. So, yeah. So be better and different. Focus on that. Create your own work like I did with Richard's movie. Create your own work. I didn't have an agent. I didn't know. I was nobody. I wasn't in the union. I was was a nobody. And I created a job for myself and an Academy Award winner. So, you know, I, I think the cart and the horse get confused. The agent is not the first step. The agent comes because you're you're worth money and they want 10% of it. (laughs) Right. Right. Showbiz. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, that's what you would do if you were an agent. A hundred percent. Right. Right. Um, What of your films do you think is the best representation of you as a creator? Wow. That's a great question. Um, Obviously I'm very proud of my work in Django. I I did have the luxury of spending quite a bit of time working on that character. And um, I actually, it might've been three months. I know I shot for five months. I might've been three months of prep, but whatever it is, I had the script a long time before I shot that movie. And then I knew I had the part months before I shot that movie. So that is probably the best reflection of all the different kinds of training I've had and all the experience I had had to that point coming together to create a role that that I then had the luxury of five months to play out. So that's probably the best representation. That said, one of my favorite roles um, was a, a every once in a while, a character will just pop up fully formed when I read it. Mm. And one of those was a movie I did called Convergence. Okay where it said church lady and you know i'm not my idea of church lady is dana carvey you know like i don't really, 
<laughs> right. Or my mama or, you know, like when I think church lady, I don't think, oh yeah, get, get Laura Caillouette for that. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I, I have some preconceived notions, but this woman popped into my head fully formed. She didn't move like me. She had different facial expressions than I did. She had, her voice was a little different. She was, she was different than me, but she popped up fully formed, like, boom, just Mm -hmm. there as I'm reading the script. And so in a way, I feel like that's a great representation of an entirely instinctual experience of now, obviously I have to back it up with all the work, but, um, but yeah, that, that character, and that's happened to me a few times where she just birthed herself. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, with Jenga really quick, I know that was a linear shoot, which is very rare. They shot uh, it in sequence. It wasn't was, in fact, you can never really do that, but it was right. mostly linear. Was that helpful as an actor? Absolutely. Like, was it far easier doing that than trying to shoot out of order or trying to, you know, um, I, I did a part on true detective and, uh, they were shooting different time eras on the same day. Forget different wow. scenes and different. They were shooting like it'd be 1980 and then it'd be 2010. Then it'd be like they were. I. That is very difficult. And I have shot movies where I've had to shoot scenes from the beginning, the end and the middle all in one day. That is extremely difficult, mm. extremely difficult. And one of the advantages to shooting in order obviously there are a thousand disadvantages is why we don't do it it's too expensive yeah but um but one of the biggest advantages is for your actors for your performers there is a building of a of a character arc a through line that they are allowed to do for you in real time they're allowed to create that for you in real time and they that that is only imitated when you take us out of order. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the best decade of film history? It feels like a trick question. I'm going to say the 70s. I meant 90s. <laughs> but it's it's probably the 70s. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I was talking to someone the other day. I, the 70s and 90s are very similar in how they they're similar came about. because they're when the vanguard came and pushed out the establishment. What's funny is that, of course, the establishment being pushed out in the 90s was the vanguard from the 70s. You know, right. the Lucases and the Spielbergs and all they that. Had become they become the Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah, they had become people. the machine. And and so the vanguard of that that one year at Sundance where it was Quentin. Uh, Robert Rodriguez, Allison Anders, um, uh, who else? Well, whatever. There was a list of people who who came out of um, that moment that pushed the next era of independent cinema and and the independent voice and what that would look like. Yeah. And obviously, Quentin dominated that conversation. Right. Yeah. He's who we immediately think of yeah doing yeah. that um if, if you were given the green light to remake any film uh, what would you choose and why oh well i think you do what oceans 11 did you choose a, f- a film that wasn't very good you don't choose yeah. with wind no you mm-hmm. don't you don't remake please people stop remaking great movies just re-release them yeah. young people haven't seen them just re-release great movies remake mediocre movies that could have been great yeah or at least could have been more fun. Like Ocean's Eleven was okay, 
but then they remade it. Great premise, it, great cast. Yeah. But, yeah. So yeah, um, I I I remember when I was a kid, I was heavily influenced by this movie called Goodbye Charlie. <laughs> that is Tony Curtis, and uh, you know, like it's a it's a yeah. Walter Matthau's in it, and um, any in any case, it's it's a fun movie. And then they remade it with Ellen Barkin and Jimmy Smith, and it was painfully bad. Mm. I guess it it's something that I wish people would, since that movie affected me so much, I wish young people could see that movie yeah. in case it would affect any of them. Um, the thing that it gave me was uh, it's about reincarnation and it's a comedy. And the there's a womanizing a uh, guy who dies and comes back as a gorgeous woman and has to deal with all the abuse he had heaped on women because <laughs> be a woman. And, um, and I really related to that as a small child, because I, I, like I said, I feel like this is the car and the driver is this mm-hmm. amorphous thing. And so I don't feel like the inside of me is necessarily male or female or what it's just a soul, you know, there's this mm-hmm. soul in there and I could have just as easily been born into a boy body and had a totally different life with the same soul. And so, so I related to that movie in that way. And I think it's an interesting concept and I wish somebody sophisticated um, would remake it as a comedy still, but as a, you know, a more sophisticated exploration of that concept. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, What is a movie that fans of yours would be surprised to hear that you enjoy? To watch? I don't know because I don't know what my fans really. You're very eclectic with what you cite as being influences. Um, I'm always fascinated asking people, you know, like I've asked people that do nothing but direct horror movies, you know, and they're like, Oh, I love watching this rom-com, but you're very eclectic. So I, I don't even think there's one you could say that would shock me. I mean, I can tell you some of my favorite movies, but I don't know that any of them are a surprise because like, I don't know, is somebody going to be surprised if somebody knows me through Quentin's movies, they're not going to be surprised that I'm a fan of Terminator two or the matrix. But if somebody knows let's, me as a professor, you know? let's flip it. Let's flip it this way. What, what's a movie that you find to be underrated? So maybe a movie ah. like we talked about earlier, you know, that there's movies that we, you know, we watch as entertainment. And then there's movies when you become an actor that you start looking at and going, wow, that's fascinating. And you grab onto it. Is there a movie that maybe a lot of people don't pay attention to that you say like, wow, that inspires me to no end as an actor? There are actually a lot of those. I wish I had had time to think about that because there are a lot of those. There are a lot of movies that I find like what's eating Gilbert grape is Mm. that movie just slays me. I mean, it just slays me and I can't, I can't watch that movie casually, like with it being on the TV doing other things because it is, it's important feeling, you know, Mm. like it matters to me that these people be okay. And, um, I care about that family. Like I genuinely deeply care about that family and they're fictional. <laughs> so, right. but that movie reminds me of Faulkner and um, Faulkner is one of my favorite authors. So, you know, it, 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 it's coming off of that thing of like that. I like that kind of storytelling and I love richly detailed characters. And if you haven't seen that movie, I feel like, whether you like Johnny Depp or Leo DiCaprio or Juliette Lewis or whether you, Which you like, should like at least one of those. One of those. I mean, what are you crazy? <laughs> Juliette Lewis alone. I mean, yeah, it, it's, so, I mean, no. yeah. 
So that would be one that, you know, I think a lot of people though now, because Leo is, you know, at the time Leo was just a kid and nobody knew what he was going to become. Although we all knew what he was become that knew that watched that movie, but, um, and had seen this boy's life before that. I mean, so, so, but small movies like that, I mean, that, you know, that guy's, that director's previous movie was my life as a dog and it was in Swedish with subtitles. So, you know, at the time that movie was kind of a sleeper, a, and I have a bunch of those where where I just really, you know, fell in love with something that other people kind of were glossing over at the time or that had a moment and that moment faded. But I think the thing that I'm most surprised by now and want to kind of give voice to is that there's a bunch of movies that I thought everybody had watched that young people have not seen. Why? It shocks me that not every female in the in the movie going world has seen Terminators one and two mm, Terminators yeah. one and two are like the most important feminist movies, <laughs> most female empowerment movies ever. Yeah. Why are they not? Why do young women not know about them? Mm. And I, I guess things like that where I, you know, where there are movies that are not necessarily unsung, they could have been huge hits, but like by the same token, why does every female filmmaker not seen point break? Point Break yeah. rocks. That is one of the best B movies ever, ever made, and it happens to have been directed by a female. <laughs> yeah, Catherine Bigelow directs. Cameron. Yeah, I mean, she so, directs the best male action movies right. ever. <laughs> and she's, right. uh, I mean, Hurt Locker, Zero, uh, Zero Dark Thirty. I mean, I watched that. I literally watched Zero Dark Thirty, and then rewound Zero Dark Thirty to the beginning and watched it straight through again because yeah. I was blown away by the filmmaking yeah. of that movie. I've done and that then, in movie theaters where you go out the exit door by and you're like one in. more ticket, please. <laughs> and then, but it was amazing. And, and, and again, it was a movie where you're like, you're sitting there going like, oh, who directed this? You know? And it's like, it's Catherine big, like, uh, like how did a woman direct this military movie? You know, like you, you don't even think about it. And you're like, I want nothing but this. Like she should direct all of the movies, you know, right, like it's, right, it's amazing. Right. Um, well, and yeah. that, that thing happens a lot now. Like for example, young men, I, I said to you earlier, breaking away. Why hasn't every young man seen breaking away? It's a coming out to my list. Movie. You haven't seen it. <laughs> I, I give no. you this gift. Go see breaking away. It is a genius movie. Dennis Christopher is one of the most beautiful human beings as a person, but as an actor, he's extraordinary. And he is so good in that movie. He's so, so, so good in that movie. And the cast includes, you know, it's like, and introducing Daniel Stern, um, the guy, oh, what's his name from Watchmen? Um, the movie, not the show. Oh, with the three names, the shorter guy. Um, oh, um, yeah, him. Yeah. And Dennis Quaid. Uh, Dennis Quaid is like, young hottie with a six pack and he's like the Brad Pitt of that time. And, you know, I mean, it, it is, it is a great Jack Earl Haley, the amazing actor. Yeah. Yes. He's yeah. amazing. So it's that, that cast and they're not even like the parents were the, the ones that got all the nominations and stuff. So it's an extraordinarily well done movie made during the seventies, during that independent era and every inch of that feel. But at the same time, it's a family film that you can watch you know, I watched yeah. it as a kid. So I don't know how, how, how did guys miss breaking away and Fandango? There's a company called Fandango that we all have that app. And yet nobody knows that's a movie. Go see <laughs> Fandango. It's Kevin Costner, Judd Nelson. 
Um, you know, it's another one of those four guys on a road trip, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and it's a funny, funny movie and, and poignant. So, yeah. you know, I, I guess that's, I get surprised by how many movies that like American graffiti, they just get lost in the flow of streaming movie, you know, but I, that's why I love these conversations because, and that's why I called it film school is because I think some of the best film school is watching these movies. Cause you hear like you have a Tarantino because he watched these biker movies in the seventies. He watched these crazy samurai, like, and so it's fascinating hearing. And I love like, now I have these movies I can go watch from you saying like, okay, I'm going to understand, first of all, I'm going to understand Laura better and I'm going to understand what she's bringing to the table more. But I'm also going to know like, there's this movie that I've never heard of that inspired an entire wave of filmmakers and I'm going to deeply appreciate their projects. You know, that's, I think that's really powerful. And that's why I love these conversations because that's what I want people who are 21 sitting there and watching, you know, yeah, watch the Spider-Man No Way Home, but also go back and watch, (laughs) you know, go watch the movies that inspired those filmmakers. Like, yeah, watch Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire. Go watch Evil Dead that Sam Raimi made for like three grand in a cabin, you know, like do your film history and and learn, like watch what they started with. Um, I think that's, you know, I mean, even beyond that, I mean, watch Three Stooges and see how much that influenced Sam Raimi. Is yeah. the number one thing I tell actors is to, if you want, if you're, say you're starting out um, and you want to get an idea of like how to do that, how to be a actor starting out, go watch everybody's first role. Yeah. You know, Richard Dreyfuss's first role was, uh, well, I don't know if it was his first role ever, but his first movie role that I'm aware of, he was in The Graduate, which by yeah. the way, if you haven't seen The Graduate, what are you doing? Go see The Graduate. What are you doing? See The Graduate. It's important. It changed things. It was the reservoir dogs of its time. It was its shock to the nation. You know, it literally inspired Jackie Brown's opening scene. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so yes. Um, wait, now where was I? <laughs> uh, uh, watch The Graduate. Uh, but okay. you were talking about watching so the first one. The one liner. Yeah. He says, uh, "You want me to call the cops? I'll go call the cops." That's his line. And so you can see how Richard handles his little one-liner and Norman fell has a small part. And that's in the same scene. And, you know, all these people who ended up having these giant careers had these little smart parts in that movie. Well, that happens over and over, or you can watch an ensemble of people just starting out Mm. like dazed and confused American graffiti. You know, these were ensembles of people just starting out. Um, They're, they're, uh, can't buy me. No, not can't. There's another one that was in the nineties one that was with, um, Oh, the ghost whisperer, <laughs> Jennifer Love Hewitt. Um, and it had a cast of thousands and a bunch of them went on. And then there's another one and another one and another one. There, there are all these ensemble cast movies that launched a thousand faces. So those are all important to see. Go see them all. There's a reason that the, there's a reason Dazed and Confused launched a bunch of careers. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. That was when I crossed off my list just beginning of this year and i was like or end of last year i was like oh i get it i get why this why these people are all household names now it's it's unreal well and Um, then another thing that that director can teach you is what it means to not just love movies but have faith in them because when he made that movie about the boy growing up and dedicated 12 years of his life to a movie not knowing he doesn't know on day one whether all of the people he's cast will even be alive in 12 years. Yeah. It's crazy. He, 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 he took that leap of faith. And that, that movie to me is a love story between that director and movies. 
yeah, yeah. Crazy, crazy risk <laughs> for sure. Um, well, okay. I think for sure I need to get you on a part two um, oh, because yes. I would love to <laughs> chat with you some more. Um, and, and, but I, I love the call to action at the end. And I think, uh, I I could see uh, you and Tarantino have some interesting conversations about film history. <laughs> yeah. I understand. I'm yeah. getting to see why there's such a connection there. Um, well, and just but, like, you know, there's a little list at the end of my book. There's a little list of all the books that are mentioned. I mean, all the movies that are mentioned within the book. Now, not all of those movies are movies that I think you should race right out and see. However, yeah. many of the book, uh, many of the movies that we've mentioned and many of the movies that I do believe are sort of critical to having a conversation with anybody in our industry are on that list. Yeah. You know, if you love Tarantino, you're not going to have a fun time talking to him if you don't know what the heck he's talking about. Right. He's going to yep. throw movie reference after movie reference after movie reference at you. So, you know, if you if you want to have a conversation with that guy, get your, that's, you bend your knees, get ready. <laughs> that's on the bucket list for me. And uh, I've done the work. I've, I've watched CC Writer in preparation for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, I mean, which I'm sure you're very familiar with with Hellride. Uh <laughs> Yeah. I had to watch that. I was required watching, but yeah, it's, I, I love the call to action to watch more movies. That's really the, I mean, it's just baseline. Like that's baseline homework. It's that's foundational. How you prove your love. Uh, uh, how, yeah. how can you say I love movies if you don't haven't seen any <laughs> know them? Right. Yeah. That's right. like saying, I love a person you have a crush on who's never met you. You know what I mean? Right. Like you have to, you have to dive into this. You have to really love it yeah. if you want to be a part of it. I mean, Quentin was already such an aficionado before he yeah. ever did one, you know, rolled one inch of film. He had already seen a zillion films. I had too. I think a lot of the people that I run with come from that school of, you know, we love movies for real. We're not kidding. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's not just a day job thing. It's a, it's a passion. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, de- I definitely, if anybody's listening to this, I mean, step one, I mean, no small parts is a fantastic book and I'm, not just say I. I wouldn't say anything right about it. <laughs> it's it's a it's a great book, um, and it's not something I have to awkwardly say like, oh, check it out. You know, maybe it's really good, really interesting. Just if, even if you're not an actor, I mean, well, just, and it is endorsed by Kevin Costner and Richard Dreyfuss and Reggie Hudlin, and uh, I'm sure people may have Diamond heard of those Phillips people. And, you yeah. know, um, it's it's a great book just to get a look behind the industry. Like even if you're not acting, I mean, it's a great the anecdotes are are invaluable and the movie recommendations. I mean, there's a long list of homework you can take and do, but um, thank you. I mean, thank you so much for, I mean, one contributing to movies that we love, but oh, also writing book. so extensively, you know, sharing a peek behind the curtain and, you know, really leaving behind nuggets that the next generation of filmmakers, actors, producers, writers, directors can look at and, you know, t- glean from, I think it's invaluable. So. And, you know, I, I really appreciate it. I hope so. You know, I really put my back into that book. I really um, have tried to be as truthful as possible and give as much information as possible um, because I re- basically was trying to write the book that I had always been looking for when I was back in those library days, looking at books and books and books and books. The book I was really looking for was one that would quit being so vague and talking in such surreptitious terms and just tell me, right. how do you do this? How do you right. do this? What's the lifestyle going to be like? How do I maintain it? How do I, everything from like, when do I join the union to how do I get a free dress for the red carpet? And that's <laughs> right. the book I wrote and continue to update. So yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, and so thank you. And thank you for doing this interview. I mean, letting me oh, you're very dive welcome. a little bit deeper. It, it means a lot to me and I hope it's, I certainly hope it's not the last time that we talk and um, it was, it was really valuable to me. 
Well, I've, I've very much enjoyed this conversation and, and not for the least of which reasons is that um, you ask unusual questions. You know, I, I do this kind of thing enough that I, there's a, a sort of group of questions, yeah. you know, like a word cluster <laughs> that are right. just the questions you get over and over. And you have um, you have questions that really put me to the test. So I really appreciate that, that you made me think. Yeah, that means the world to me. Um, thank you so much. And it, seriously, um, I mean, everybody go pick up a copy of that book. And uh, like I said, hopefully uh, we'll have this conversation again sometime soon. Ask some more unusual questions. Wonderful. I look awesome. forward to it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.